this morning. Romans chapter 3. Listen then and follow along as we read the word of God. What the, what uh, yeah then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God what if some were unfaithful does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means let God be true and everyone a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and and Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we come into your presence today and we ask that you would speak to us from your word. Uh, that your word would be clear and, and powerful and go forth with the spirit. Give us uh, wisdom and insight and give me uh, the words to say. Oh, Lord, we pray that your name would be uh, lifted up and honored and glorified and that the power of your word would would meet us where we are. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you can think to a time uh, when you were a child, a teenager, perhaps, and think back to a time uh, when maybe you did something or your parents did something and you thought it wasn't fair. I don't know if you ever had scenarios like this. I remember being a teenager and trying to explain to my my parents why I was in the right and they were wrong and it was unfair. And my dad often would respond to me and just say, well, son, life isn't fair. Sometimes we charge our parents with being unfair, with being wrong, with with being mean, even kind of a you don't know what's right. Maybe even you don't understand because you're not in my shoes. And sometimes we think our parents are wrong until we become adults and then we think back and we go, Yeah, my parents really were in the right there. They really did know what they were talking about. They had a a different perspective. And I was the one who was wrong. And my wrongness goes to even serve to, to, to illustrate just how right they really were. But then even more how patient they were putting up with me as a teenager. And some of you, I'm sure, have been in similar shoes. We're in a passage of Scripture where the temptation is to to bring charge against God, to suggest that maybe God is unrighteous. Why would God do things in such and such a way? And one of the things that this passage brings out is that in all the ways that God acts, he is justified in his words and he prevails When he is judged, God is always in the right. 
God does not act contrary to his character. And it is human nature for us to sometimes think that we can explain ourselves to God. That we can explain why this isn't fair that he's allowed such and such to happen a certain way. Our main point, what we need to hear this morning, is that God is faithful to his character in all things. God is faithful to his character in all things. And we cannot be like Job and, and seek to stand before God and say, bring, let me have an audience with you so I can explain things to you, God, why this isn't fair. Why you shouldn't have allowed this to happen. Why I had no sin in my life at this point. Job was right in the fact that he had not had a specific sin, but Job was wrong in this idea that he could stand and argue with God. God is faithful to his character in all things. First, this morning, our faithfulness, our unfaithfulness, excuse me, does not thwart the faithfulness of God. We are a people who are often unfaithful. We are a people who are plagued by sin, who are corrupted by it. Our unfaithfulness does not thwart the faithfulness of God. And so in this passage, Paul has in chapter two been critiquing the Jewish person for their failure to keep the law of God. And after critiquing the Jew under the law, Paul argues then that there is still a value in being Jewish or in God setting apart the Jewish people. Look at verse three, uh, chapter three, verses one and two. What then at what then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? And so Paul's argument here flows from the person who is the Jewish person might think, well, why did God even set apart the Jews to begin with? None of us have kept the law. You've said that, Paul. We, we have the law. We have circumcision, but we've disobeyed it. And Paul has gone on in the end of chapter two and said, it's not the outward circumcision that matters, the going through of the ceremony. It's the inward circumcision of the heart, which comes from the Holy Spirit, which there were believers who were Gentiles in the church at Rome that had that. They weren't circumcised outwardly, but they had the spirit inside of them. And so if you're tracking with Paul's argument, someone might just throw their hands up and say, well, then what was the point of the Old Testament? Why did God even have us as a nation, Israel, the Jews? Why did God even Give us circumcision. What is the point? We might ask the question this way. Is Paul throwing out the heritage of Israel? Is he casting dispersion upon Israel or the Jewish person? And and we might respond in, in good Pauline language here. By no means. Not at all. Look at what he says, that that God has entrusted Israel with the oracles of God or the the covenants of salvation. Look at verse two. Much in every way. What's the advantage? It's a big advantage. There's good things that happen to begin with. He says the Jews 
were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the oracles of God here refer to, I think, the word of God, but but perhaps more specifically or more narrowly, uh, the covenants of salvation along the way. We read this morning of, of God's covenant uh, with Noah, the 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 rainbow promising to all the earth that the, the earth would never be flooded ever again. But then God comes along and he makes covenants that are that are more specific, specific to Abraham and his descendants, that in you, he says, all nations will be blessed. And that ultimately is a, a promise of the coming of Christ. He gives them the law on Mount Sinai. He gives them the covenant that he makes with David. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 of his uh, brothers in the flesh, he says, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. What is what is the value of being Jewish in circumcision? Paul says God has done a lot of awesome things. The, the story leading up to the gospel is all about God working with Israel. He's laid down the foundations of the gospel, if you will, in the history of Israel. Making these covenants, giving these oracles, revealing himself to the people and sending the prophets. There is much benefit from that. And yet that benefit was not supposed to lead God's people to be boastful. It was not to make them self-righteous, which is largely what Paul is critiquing in Romans chapter 2. There were many privileges given to Israel in the Old Testament. But even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, the, the scriptures warn that Israel was not supposed to think that she was more righteous than the other nations. And this is what Paul is driving at. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are under sin. Verse 9, as we'll talk about next week. And chapter 2 has been zeroing in on the sins of Israel. And so you think about the Old Testament and think about how many times in Scripture did Israel walk away from God? I, I dare you to count that sometime. I don't even know if you could come up with a number. It, it happens all the time. Of course, you know, there are bright spots in, in Israel's history. There are many times they renew the covenant or you think of David, a man after God's own heart, or you think of, of, of other occasions, Elijah, the prophet being, being a godly man. It's, it's not to say that all is lost, but it is to say that the big picture is what? Israel doesn't remain faithful to God. And so Israel's unfaithfulness did not stop God's faithfulness. Look at verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And here we have that wonderful Pauline phrase, by no means. The, the King James, uh, the old King James used to translate it as God forbid. Uh, we might say, no way! Absolutely not. Israel over and over again, walking away from God, breaking the law, breaking the covenant that God made with them. 
Did God then break His faithfulness? Did God wrap it up and say, that's it, forget it, we are done here. I tried with these people and it's not going to work. What God shows us in Scripture is that He makes covenants with His people that are unconditional. Meaning the covenant being fulfilled did not rest in the hands of Israel. You and I being saved, it does not rest in our power and our ability. And thank goodness, because we are by nature filled with sin and unfaithfulness. But God is faithful. Look at verse 4. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. By and large, as I've said, the story of Israel is the story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel disobeying God, but God continuing to redeem and show mercy. And ultimately, he makes a promise to David. That David would have a descendant, a son, an heir, and that descendant would save his people from their sins, that he would be the Messiah that God would be faithful in His steadfast love, in His bonds that He made in keeping the covenant, even when God's people again and again and again broke it. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says this. He's laid out the blessings of the covenant. He's laid out the curses of the covenant. Curses ultimately being Exile taken out of the land. That's what we see happen in the book of Daniel and other places where Babylon comes in and carries them off. It's the ultimate, they broke the word of God sign. And Moses says this, For I know after my death you will surely act corruptly and, and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in these days to come In these days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of his your hands. Moses says this and and Moses, you know, Moses is a prophet, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a prophet to to look at how Israel had treated him and say, yeah, I I know what's going to happen. Now, I think Moses is saying this is a matter of prophecy, but but again, Uh, If I was in Moses' shoes and I'm not a prophet, you could still see what was coming. He's like, you guys are going to blow it. I was just reading through Numbers the other night. Here's a a good plug to read through your Bible in the year. Uh, You should be in Numbers right now. And so you'll know this illustration. But I was just reading through Numbers and, and it struck me how many times, like, like we call Numbers, uh, numbers because it's numbering the people of God. I think we should call it numbers because it numbers how many times Israel does dumb stuff. It, it just struck me how many times chapter after chapter they they just learned a lesson. So you have like Korah's rebellion and, and they just learned, OK, maybe we shouldn't question Moses and Aaron because that leads to bad things. And what do they do the next chapter? Well, who's this? Who's this Moses guy think that he is? It's like you just had a plague that killed 24,000 people and God had to turn the plague away and show mercy and you still don't get it. And it's like on and on and on. 
It's, it's like with your kids, you know, when you say to them, how many times do I have to tell you this? Didn't you hear me the first time? And, and, and this is, you know, numbers is not unique to the story of Scripture. God's people, God's people are so unfaithful. Does God turn his back on them? Does God turn his back on us when, when we as a Christian sin? Does God, you know, roll up his sleeves and, and, and wash his hands and pack it up and say, that's it. You know, I redeemed you in Christ, but we're, we're just done here. You didn't learn your lesson. Absolutely not. God is faithful when we are faithless. He says in Hebrews that God has sworn with an oath. He says in Acts that, that to David he had sworn with an oath to put one of David's descendants on the throne. And then here in this passage it says, let God be true where everyone is a liar. God always keeps his word. Always. If God did not always keep His Word, you would not have Jesus Christ. If God didn't keep His Word, you wouldn't know that the blood of Christ covers your sin. You wouldn't know that when you cry out to God, He hears you and shows mercy and cleanses you from sin. God doesn't forgive you because of the strength of your pleading. God forgives you because of the faithfulness to his oath. Because he has kept his word. There are times in our lives where we cry out to God with incredible devotion, with incredible strength. And God hears those prayers. And then there are times where we cry out to God and we really have blown it. We feel miserable. And we feel like, God, I I shouldn't even be coming into your presence I, I know that I have nothing. And, and I look at how uh, spiritually lackadaisical and lazy I've been. How, how contemptuous and uncaring. God hears your prayers not on the basis of your character, but on the basis of His faithfulness shown to us in Christ. So that God is always right. That God is, is justified in His words. And He says He prevails when you are judged. Meaning when people try to bring tests to God, God prevails over any kind of judgment that man might try to bring. I think a, a great example, and I've already mentioned this, but I think a great example is, is Job. We all know, and I, th- I think we recognize that, that Job didn't sin or do a specific sin that he was being punished for. In other words, all that Job lost, all that God allowed to happen in Job's life, Job was right to say, okay, this isn't God's judgment because I did something specifically wrong. And Job's three friends were always saying, oh, no, no, Job, you've got something that you didn't repent of. And Job's saying, no, I, I honestly don't. And, and, and this isn't Job in, in this sense being boastful, just looking at his life and saying, you know, I've, I've kept a short account with God. I've walked with Him. I've regularly been repentant. I have no a hidden sin that I know of. But as the story goes on and unfolds, Job gets a little more bold, a little more boisterous. 
and starts to say that, you know, if I just could have an audience with God, if I could just talk to God and and almost in a sense call out and cry out and say, God, this wasn't fair because I, I didn't do anything wrong. Let me just show my case before God that I didn't do anything wrong. And God knows that's the truth. Job was right that he hadn't done anything wrong. But he was also wrong in the way that he thought he could approach God. And, and sometimes we forget uh, in the story of Job, you realize there were four friends. There was a fourth friend, Elihu. And Elihu speaks at the end of the book right before the three or four chapters where God speaks. And one of the reasons Elihu speaks here is it shows us Elihu understands the character of God. And he understands what what Job is doing wrong here in the way that Job is going to try to approach God. And so the three friends speak and they're wrong and they go back and forth and then Elijah pipes up. But then God speaks and Elijah, Elihu, excuse me, starts out this way. It says, then Elihu, the son of uh, Barachel, the Buzzite, the family of Ram, burned in anger. He burned with anger at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. In other words, Job didn't say, God, you do what is right no matter what. I don't understand it, but God, you are always in the right. Job didn't say, God, you are are justified when you speak and, and vindicated when you act. Job said, let me have an audience with God. And explain my case and and plead that, God, this is unfair. The question you and I need to have as we think about our unfaithfulness and how it doesn't thwart the faithfulness of God. Do I have a vision for the majesty and the glory of God that he is the, the greatest and highest of all beings? That all of his works bring glory and honor to his name. That I am unfaithful and God is faithful. Why does God act? He does so in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, many places it says, God, do this for the sake of your name. That that I have nothing that I can appeal to God with. I can't say, God, you know, I've tried really hard to be a good guy. And, And so you need to hear me because of that. No, I am unfaithful. But why is God faithful? Why does God keep his promises? What's at stake if God doesn't keep his promise? The name of God. God could have made all the promises conditional. He could have said, if you do this, then I'll do that. If he did that, nobody would have gotten saved. If he did that, David wouldn't have had a descendant named Jesus. If God had said to David, David, if you and your descendants stay faithful to me, the Messiah will come. David had Bathsheba. Solomon had lots of wives. Solomon built foreign temples. We could go on and on and on and on through the line of David. But God's promise was sworn with an oath. 
Who does God swear by? Like, like when you and I make a promise, when we go into a court of law, we just talked about this a couple weeks ago on Sunday evening, and we, you know, we put our hand on the Bible and, and we, we swear by an oath by the name of God. And we're saying, may God judge me and hold me accountable. May a higher power hold me accountable to the words that I'm going to tell. It's, it's a way of saying, yes, I am telling the truth, and I know I'm an accountable to someone bigger than myself. Someone bigger than just the court of law that says, you know, we'll throw you in jail if you commit perjury. Who does God swear by? Like, can God look at someone else and say, well, I'll have that person hold me accountable if I, if I don't keep my word? God swears by his own name. He makes the oath by his own name because God is faithful. Scriptures say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is a trustworthy saying. If we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you are so united to Jesus that he cannot cut you off any more then you and I could cut off our own arm. We are faithless often in our Christian life. We are, as we sing in the hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Our, our Christian life sometimes ebbs and flows as we, we struggle with sin. But do not give up in the struggle. Because God is the faithful one. And God's faithfulness does not rest on your character. Because you and I, as we know, are often unfaithful. Second, this morning, God's faithfulness does not excuse my unrighteousness. So my unrighteousness was used to show God's righteousness. Look at verse 5. So we are faithless. God is faithful. We then what it's picking up and saying, I'm faithless. I'm unrighteous. But that goes to actually show God's faithfulness, God's righteous character. Look at five and six. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means. There it is again. Absolutely not. If, if, if we could, we should add about six exclamation points to this. I know that's bad grammar. You should only use one when you're writing. But, but, but this really, you, you cannot read this just as a by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? This is no. No. Don't think that. If our unrighteousness serves to show the, unrighteous, the righteousness of God, what do we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath. That God is, that is God unfair, unjust. God, if, if what I'm doing, even in my sin, is serving a greater good to show your plan and highlight how awesome you are, it's just not fair that you would judge me, you know? I'm, I'm helping you out, God. You, it's almost like saying you, you need my unfaithfulness so that your righteousness looks even bigger and better. 
think, if you will, of, of a dark room. If, if I were to turn on a flashlight here and shine it against the wall, it'd be, it'd be kind of tough to see. But if we turned out all the lights and, and we darkened all the windows and it was pitch black and I turned on that light, even a, a tiny little pocket light would look magnificently bright. The, the darkness would serve to highlight, to draw attention to the light. In one sense, the light isn't any brighter, but the contrast. And here the idea is God's righteousness is always a perfect righteousness. But, but when you set it with the contrast of my unrighteousness, think of how that highlights just how righteous and faithful God is. And, and the language here of the righteousness of God, it, it, we've seen that in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Romans 3.22 For the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 10.3 For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Sometimes in Paul's language in Romans, righteousness means the verdict that we have from God, our, our justification. But other times it also has in it this, this idea of the the character of God it comes from the Old Testament. This idea of the, the saving activity, the, the righteous display of God in saving his people. Psalm 65, 5. But awesome are your deeds. You answer us with righteousness, O God, O God of our salvation. Psalm 71, 2. In your righteousness... It's like this idea of your faithfulness, your, your keeping your promises, your, your character where you do not break your word. In your righteousness, deliver me, rescue me, incline your ear to me, save me. Psalm 98, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. And this, I think, is particularly what Paul is getting at. As God saves sinners, he declares them righteous. But as God saves sinners, he also displays his righteous character. Not the righteous side where he judges, but but the righteousness where he keeps his promises, where he is good, where he delivers salvation because of the sake of his name and for his glory. The temptation is to think, God, you shouldn't judge me in my sin, because if it wasn't for my sin, you wouldn't have to save me. And when you saved me, you showed your righteousness, you showed your character. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Do not think this way. In fact, God still judges sin. And you'll notice here at the end of, of verse 5 where it says that God is unrighteous. What should we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us? And then he says, I speak in a human way. Paul likes to argue oftentimes this way. And, and, and this is even good. Sometimes in our culture, we, we argue this way. We take up our opponent's arguments. Paul is speaking as the sinner would speak, as the cynic would speak. Oh, well, Paul, if we take your argument to the logical conclusion, then I have to say that God is unjust if he judges my sin. 
because my sin was used to show his good character. No, that's not the right way to think. Even if it's a human argument, don't go there. The temptation might be you could look at this from the Old Testament as well. How many times in Israel's history did God raise someone up for the purpose of showing his righteousness, of delivering Israel? Like he raises up these wicked kings for the very reason that he wants to show his power and strike them down. And you could look and say, well, that's not fair that God would judge that sinner because God used that sinner to raise him up. Pharaoh's the perfect example in the time of Moses. It says in Exodus 19, God says, for this purpose, I have raised you up. You, Pharaoh, you wicked, unbelieving pagan who's going to try to attack me and hurt my people. But God says, I've raised you up to show my power. Because I'm the one who delivers. It happens in First Kings with Solomon. God raised up an adversary against Solomon. It says, hey, dad, the e- Edomite in Isaiah chapter nine, the Lord raises the adversaries of Razan against him and stirs up enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel. There are oftentimes in Isaiah 10, the king of Assyria, God says, you're my chosen instrument to go and judge my people. But then he says, but I'm going to judge you for your sin. And you might say, well, God, how can how can you do that? You allowed his unrighteousness to prosper so that you could show your righteousness and deliver your people. Is God unfair? Is he an unrighteous judge? Now. Now, why not? Well, first off, in Isaiah chapter 10, it says uh, it says this. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against a people of my own wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like mine in the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations, not a few. Meaning the Assyrian king did not come in there saying, I'm here to serve God. I'm just here to follow his will. You know, he raised me up, Israel, to be the rod of his anger. And I love the Lord. And I want to do his will. No, the king of Assyria comes in with this. I'm going to stick it to God and his people. And God says, well, actually, you know, I'm kind of using you. (laughs) Ha ha, joke's on you. But the Assyrian does it with wickedness in his heart. And that wickedness is rightly judged. You could even say the second answer is the answer that Paul gives for how then could God judge the world? In other words, I think there's this idea that God works all things according to his plans. Even even when something sinful happens and the people that did the sin are responsible for it, God can often use it for his own purposes. That he works all things for good and for the glory of those who love his name. We often don't see it. We often don't understand it. And we may never understand why God allowed it to happen. But we can trust God's faithfulness. But God still judges sin. God doesn't say, well, just because I'm using this, forget it. I'm not going to judge anything. God still establishes his righteousness. 
Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? You go back to the argument in Romans chapter 2. God doesn't show partiality. There is a day of judgment. In other words, Paul is saying, you can't say, sinner, that, oh, well, I was just, oh, I was only doing what God had me do. It wasn't me. It was God's purpose. Now you will be judged because the sin was in your heart. And God is righteous. God's righteousness doesn't stop him from judging sin. He shows mercy. He shows grace. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent, he will forgive your sins. But if you do not, you cannot say, well, that's okay because my sin showed how good God was. I'll just keep living in sin. You cannot say this. We need to be careful that we don't charge God with unrighteousness. We need to be careful that we don't stand before God and say, God, this is unfair that you would allow this to happen, that you would have these sins take place and then and then somehow forgive people for them or even use them in a way that brings glory to you. We need to be careful that we don't stand before God and think that we know better than God. Because we don't. You don't get to look at God and say, well, God then is unrighteous if He judges people for His sin. God is God. And you and I are not. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth. So God's ways are higher than your ways and my ways. Did you ever tell your child something and they they just don't understand it? And you just say, well, I'm I'm the parent and I know better. I kind of enjoy doing that sometimes with the kids. You know, I know something that you don't. Now, as they get into the teen years, it changes because they start to know more. But we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. How much more with God in his infinite knowledge, the vastness of his wisdom. And, and you want to be like Job and say, well, well, let me have an audience with God. How many times has something happened in your life? And the temptation from us is to charge God with unrighteousness. It's not fair. Why are you letting this happen to me? Now, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with, with crying out to God and, and in our tears, pouring our heart out and saying, God, I, I just don't understand. I, I don't know what you're doing. Help me to trust you. I, I, I'm really struggling with this. If it's your will, show me. Give me understanding. It's quite different. To waltz into the presence of God and and say, in effect, God, you owe me an answer. This isn't fair. You explain yourself to me. What did God say to Job? I I love the the challenges that God brings to Job. We don't have time to read all three chapters of it, but, but he starts out this way. 
Who is this that darkens the council by words without knowledge? You almost picture God sitting on this throne and who's this down there that thinks he can talk on my level? Then he says this, dress for action like a man. The, the old language was gird up your loins. Before you went into battle in the ancient world, if you, you would wear a robe. And so, you know, we didn't have pants. Uh, so you, you would actually gird up the robe. You would bring it up. You would tie it. Just like a runner wears running shorts so they don't get tangled. You would, you would bring up all your robe and your trousers and you tie it around. They called it girding your loins. You're, you're getting ready for action. Brace yourself. A fight is coming. And so he says, dress for action like a man. Get ready. I'm going to ask you a few questions. He says, I will question you and you make it known to me. This is this is the quiz that you do not want to get from your teacher at school. Shall a fault finder contend with God? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And he just goes on and on and Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, tell me how this animal does this. Tell me how this works. If we were if we were living in our day and age, uh, you know, he would start pulling out like quantum physics questions. But he would ask the questions that could stump Stephen Hawking, you know, like, okay, Stephen, you're so smart. Answer these things for me. And, And he is a smart guy, by the way, Stephen Hawking. That's just to say God is so much smarter. Nebuchadnezzar found this out in Daniel chapter 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his own will among the hosts of the heavens, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Why, God, answer me. And then as we walk through the passage in Romans 3, do not presume God's goodness and continue in evil. That's the third point this morning. Don't say to yourself, God is so good, so faithful. I I don't understand why God is faithful, but I'm just going to live it up because he is faithful. Look at verses seven and eight. We see here that it's sinful to think that you can do evil since God will turn it to good anyways. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. This, this is actually the, the true statement part of it here. Yeah, I am sinful. I do lie. But, but when God reveals the truth, it, it abounds to his glory. So we might say, if through my lie, God's truth abounds in glory, why am I still being condemned as sinner? This is our question. And why not do evil that good may come? And then he adds this note, as some people are slanderously, slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. So so some are saying, well, if what Paul says is true, why not do evil so that good may come? God, Paul here and part of what Paul is doing, not only bringing up their arguments, but but taking some of his arguments to the logical conclusion to say you can't go there. That's the the wrong conclusion from what I'm trying to say. Someone might say, well, if God is going to get all the glory in the end anyways. Why don't I just sin? Doesn't God look awesome when he forgives sin? Why don't I sin even more? Because that will make God look even awesomer. Oh, don't think that way. 
Look at Israel. You know, she sinned and and God continually glorified his name. Maybe Israel should have sinned some more. No. No. There is, I think, a temptation to think this way in the Christian life sometimes. Particularly if you're like me and you were raised most of your life or all of your life in a Christian home. You, you grew up going to church and you, by and large, lived a, a good moral life. Not to say that we didn't sin, but by and large, we, we tried through our lives to do um, the right thing. And sometimes, particularly for young people, when they, they grow up in a Christian home, sometimes we, we get to adulthood and we think, maybe I'm missing out on something. And we see other people that have come to Christ and we see the the background they came from and all the sins that they did. And we think, wow, God saved them. And they got to go out and, as we might say, sow their wild oats. What harm would it be if I stopped going to church for a little while? What what harm would it be if I uh, start doing some of those things that are fun that my friends are doing? God will will still save me. It's sort of that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence argument. I've lived kind of a strict moral life. I've grown up in the church. I'm a believer, the, the young person might say. And then they say, but I'm missing out on some things. And I know God will forgive me of them. So so maybe I should just go indulge in them a little bit. Maybe it's drinking. Maybe it's partying. I think a big one is just sex before marriage. All our friends are doing it. Why not just go and indulge and have some fun? And I'll come back to God because God will forgive me. Oh, may we not think that way. May we not get that way. This idea that, that I'll do evil for a little. I'll, I'll live it up and, and, and have some good times. And then I'll come back to my grounding. And then I'll, I'll come back to, to my morals. Then I'll live for God. Then I'll, I'll repent and continue in the faith. Paul says, no, absolutely not. We'll be judged for our sins. And, and if you think this way, it's your condemnation is just don't go down that path. Don't find the sins of the world alluring. And then think to yourself, well, God will be faithful anyways. So what's it hurt if I'm a little bit unfaithful along the way? You don't know the heart of God. You don't know the the wonder of His holiness. The the costliness of of the blood of Christ that that you would think that you can just uh, live it up a little more and just have a little bit more of that forgiveness thrown on your account. Will God forgive any sin that you repent of? Yes, absolutely. Is that an excuse to say, well, I can just go and do what I want and I'll just ask for forgiveness in the end? It's kind of like the kid who says, I know I'm not supposed to take the car out for a joyride, but I'll just go and do it because it's easier to ask forgiveness in the end than to try to not do it. Don't live that way. The second aspect here of this, don't take away from the gospel. Notice what Paul says. And and, and, and some are saying, why not do evil that good may come as some slanderously charge us with saying 
So some people weren't actually arguing this, but they were actually saying, this is what Paul says. If you believe Paul's gospel, Paul's saying, well, you can just sin however you want because forgiveness is free. Therefore, forgiveness really has to cost you something. Sometimes, and this is the other side of unpacking this, sometimes those of us that have have grown up in a a strict moral upbringing, and it's good to be grounded in the Word of God. I'm I'm not trying to mock that, but I'm just trying to say where we come from sometimes. Sometimes we have a, a strong sense of justice, a clear, this is right, this is wrong. And we are, are zealous at, at putting our foot down. And sometimes we forget the riches and the vastness of God's forgiveness. It's, it's the person who, who basically their whole lives, you know, they know they have sins. They know that Jesus forgives them of their sin, but they can look and they say, you know what, I've, I've lived a pretty decent life, humanly speaking. And then you find out that there's this really wicked person that has come to Christ and got grace. The Nazi racist murderer. And the temptation is to say, yeah, but but I lived the good life, followed the Lord, and God brought grace into my life. How is it fair that this guy should live this horrible, wicked way Worse sins than I ever did and get the exact same grace as me. And then the opponent of Paul could say, if that person can get grace, well, then the rest of us might as well just live however we want. You see what the opponent can do here is is take that and turn it into an argument for legalism. They can say, well, if Paul is saying we're saved by grace alone, freely by the work of God, then you can sin however you want. And we know that Scripture doesn't teach you can sin however you want. Therefore, we must have to do something to earn salvation. Do you see kind of the the internal twisted logic? It's not fair that that guy would be such a sinner and get forgiven so freely. Therefore, we really must have to do something to get grace. God's grace comes freely through the blood of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ are we forgiven of our sins. But the temptation is, rather than to follow the argument of Paul where he's driving to this, we are all under sin. The temptation is to think that we are better than others. And then to think, well, if that sinner over there can get forgiven well, then we all might as well just live however we want. Can that sinner over there get forgiven? Absolutely. Forgiveness of sins comes through repenting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I never bring anything to the table. What do we have to bring before God but our unfaithfulness, our lies, our unrighteousness the problem with this kind of thinking that is charging Paul with this charge is you don't understand the depths of your sin you think that because you generally lived a good life and there are people that have generally lived decent lives but it makes you no better than anyone else because sin 
is sin in the eyes of God. And it is only God's righteousness coming in Christ that leads God to forgive sin. It is so easy to say, God's not fair because I tried to obey God and now I have forgiveness. This person didn't even try to obey God and they have forgiveness. Don't compare yourself with other people. Compare yourself to God. When you stand before His holiness, none of us measure up. Salvation is by grace alone. The argument here of of Romans 2, it it drives us to the cross. The argument of Romans 3, the, the faithfulness of God, it drives us to the cross because all are sinners and in need of the exact same grace. God's faithfulness comes by His Word. It comes through the cross of Christ and it comes for His glory alone. So that at the end of the day, you look at this and you look at yourself and you say, God gets all the credit. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God is awesome. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come into your presence today and we want to ask that you would just be with us, that you would Uh, Speak your word to us as we partake of communion. Now, Lord, we ask that you would draw us closer to Jesus, draw us to the cross of Calvary, that we might see that it is only in the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have forgiveness of sins. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to take communion this morning. Uh, The guys are going to come down and prepare to to pass out the elements. Communion is a time of of remembering uh, the Lord's death on our behalf. And as we just talked about this morning, each one of us is a sinner. Each one of us is, is unrighteous before God. And we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins. You cannot earn it. You cannot stand before God and say, it is my goodness or my faithfulness or who I am that brings me into your presence. You cannot boast before God in your own strength, in your own character, in your own goodness or nobleness. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior and you have received the forgiveness of sins, we invite you to take communion. As you take in these elements, remember that Jesus' body really was crucified for you. That his blood.